Section 13 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 13, Great Writers by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Lord Macaulay, Part 1. 1800 to 1859. Artistic Historical Writing. Among the eminent men of letters of the present century, Thomas Babington Macaulay takes a very high position. In original genius, he was inferior to Carlyle, but he was greater in learning, in judgment, and especially in felicity of style. He was an historical artist of the foremost rank, the like of whom has not appeared since Voltaire, and he was, moreover, no mean poet, and might have been distinguished as such, had poetry been his highest pleasure and ambition. The same may be said of him as a political orator. Very few men in the House of Commons ever surpassed him in the power of making an eloquent speech. He was too impetuous and dogmatic to be a great debater, like Fox or Pitt or Peel or Gladstone. But he might have reached a more exalted and influential position as a statesman had he confined his remarkable talents to politics. But letters were the passion of Macaulay, from his youth up, and his remarkably tenacious memory, abnormal as it seems to me enabled him to bring his vast store of facts to support plausibly any position he chose to take. At fifty years of age, he had probably read more books than any man in Europe since Gibbon and Niebuhr. He literally devoured everything he could put his hands upon, without cramming for a special object, especially the Greek and Latin classics, which he read over and over again, not so much for knowledge as for the pleasure it gave him as a literary critic and a student of artistic excellence. Macaulay was of Scotch descent, like so many eminent historians, poets, critics, and statesmen who adorned the early and middle part of the 19th century. Scott, Burns, Carlyle, Jeffrey, Dundas, Playfair, Wilson, Napier, Mackintosh, Robertson, Allison, a group of geniuses who lived in Edinburgh and made its society famous, to say nothing of great divines and philosophers like Chalmers and Stuart and Hamilton. Macaulay belonged to a good family, the most distinguished members of which were clergymen, with the exception of his uncle, General Macaulay, who made a fortune in India, and his father, the celebrated merchant and philanthropist Zachary Macaulay, who did more than any other man, Wilberforce accepted, to do away with the slave trade and to abolish slavery in the West India Islands. Zachary Macaulay was the most modest and religious of men, and after an eventful life in Africa as governor of the colony of Sierra Leone, settled in Clapham, near London, with a handsome fortune. He belonged to that famous evangelical set, who made Clapham famous, and whose extraordinary piety and philanthropy are commemorated by Sir James Stephen in one of his most interesting essays. They resembled in peculiarities the early Quakers and primitive Methodists, and though very narrow, were much respected for their unostentatious benevolence blended with public spirit. Macaulay was born at Rothley Temple in Leicestershire, October 25, 1800, but it was at Clapham that his boyhood was chiefly spent. His precocity startled everyone who visited his father's hospitable home. At the age of three, he would lie at full length on the carpet, eagerly reading. He was never seen without an open book in his hands, even during his walks. He cared nothing for the sports of his companions. He could neither ride nor drive nor swim nor row a boat nor play a game of tennis or football. He cared only for books of all sorts, which he seized upon with inextinguishable curiosity, and stored their contents in his memory. When a boy, he had learned the Paradise Lost by heart. He did not care to go to school because it interrupted his reading. Hannah Moore, a frequent visitor at Clapham and a warm friend of the family, 
gazed upon him with amazement, but was too wise and conscientious to spoil him by her commendations. At eight years of age, he also had great facility in making verses, which were more than tolerable. Zachary Macaulay objected to his son being educated in one of the great schools in England, like Westminster and Harrow, and he was therefore sent to a private school kept by an evangelical divine who had been a fellow at Cambridge, a good scholar but narrow in his theological views. Indeed, Macaulay got enough of Calvinism before he went to college and was so unwisely crammed with it at home and at school that through life he had a repugnance to the evangelical doctrines of the low church, with which, much to the grief of his father, he associated Kant, always his especial abhorrence and disgust. While Macaulay venerated his father, he had little sympathy with his views and never loved him as he did his own sisters. He did his filial duty, and that was all, contributed largely to his father's support later in life, treated him with profound respect, but was never drawn to him in affectionate frankness and confidence. It cannot be disguised that Macaulay was worldly in his turn of mind, intensely practical, and ambitious of distinction as soon as he became conscious of his great powers, although in his school days he was very modest and retiring. He was not religiously inclined, nor at all spiritually minded. An omnivorous reader seldom is narrow and seldom is profound. Macaulay was no exception. He admired Pascal, but only for his exquisite style and his trenchant irony. He saw little in Augustine except his vast acquaintance with Latin authors. He carefully avoided writing on the schoolmen, or Calvin, or the great divines of the 17th century. Bunyan he admired for his genius and perspicuous style rather than for his sentiments. Even his famous article on Bacon is deficient in spiritual insight. It is a description of the man rather than the dissertation on his philosophy. Macaulay's greatness was intellectual rather than moral, and his mental power was that of the scholar and the rhetorical artist rather than the thinker. In his masterly ways of arraying facts, he has never been surpassed, and in this he was so skillful that it mattered little which side he took. Like Daniel Webster, he could make any side appear plausible. Doubtless in the law he might have become a great advocate had he not preferred literary composition instead. Had he lived in the times of the Grecian sophists, he might have baffled Socrates, not by his logic, but by his learning and his aptness of illustration. Macaulay entered Trinity College, Cambridge in 1818, being a healthy, robust young man of 18, after five years training in Greek and Latin, having the eldest son of Wilberforce for a school companion. Among his contemporaries and friends at Cambridge were Charles Austin, Prade, Derwent Coleridge, Hyde Villers, and Romilly, but I infer from his life by Trevelyan that his circle of intimate friends was not so large as it would have been had he been fitted for college at Westminster or Eton. Nor at this time were his pecuniary circumstances encouraging. After he had obtained his first degree, he supported himself while studying for a fellowship by taking a couple of pupils for £100 a year. Eventually, he gained a fellowship worth £300 a year, which was his main support for seven years, until he obtained a government office in London. He probably would have found it easier to get a fellowship at Oxford than at Cambridge, since mathematics were uncongenial to him, his forte being languages. He was most distinguished at college for English composition and Latin declamation. In 1819, he wrote a poem, Pompeii, which gained him the Chancellor's Medal. A distinction won again in 1821 by a poem on evening, while the same year gave him the Craven Scholarship for his classical attainments. He took his bachelor's degree in 1822 and was made a fellow of Trinity College. He did not obtain his fellowship, however, until his third trial, being no favorite with those who had prizes and honors to bestow, because of his neglect of science and mathematics. 
As a profession, Macaulay made choice of the law, being called to the bar in 1826, and at Leeds joined the Northern Circuit, of which Brougham was the leading star. But the law was not his delight. He did not like its technicalities. He spent most of his time in his chambers in literary composition or in the galleries of the House of Commons listening to the debates. He never applied himself seriously to anything which went against the grain. At court he got no briefs, but his fellowship enabled him to live by practicing economy. He also wrote occasional essays, excellent but not remarkable, for Knight's Quarterly Magazine. It was in this periodical, too, that his early poems were published, but he did not devote much time to this field of letters, although, as we have said, he might undoubtedly have succeeded in it. His poetry, if he had never written anything else, would not be considered much inferior to that of Sir Walter Scott, being full of life and action, and, like most everything else he did, winning him applause. Years later, he felt the risk of publishing his Lays of Ancient Rome, but as he knew what he could do and what he could not do, or rather what would be popular, he was not disappointed. The poems were well received, for they were eminently picturesque and vital, as well as strong, masculine, and unadorned. The rhyme and meter were also felicitous. He had no obscurities, and the spirit of his lays was patriotic and ardent, showing his love of liberty. I think his battle of ivory is equal to anything that Scott wrote. Yet Macaulay is not regarded by the critics as a true poet. That is, he did not write poetry because he must, like Burns and Byron. His poetry was not spontaneous. It was a manufactured article, very good of its kind, but not such as to have given him the fame which his prose writings made for him. It was not, however, until his article on Milton appeared in the Edinburgh Review in 1825 that Macaulay's great career began. Like Byron, he woke up one morning to find himself famous. Everybody read and admired an essay, the style of which was new and striking. Where did you pick up that style? wrote Geoffrey to the briefless barrister. It transcended in brilliancy anything which had yet appeared in the Edinburgh or Quarterly. Brougham became envious and treated the rising light with no magnanimity or admiration. Of course, the author of such an uncommon article as that on Milton, the praise of which was in everybody's mouth, had invitations to dinner from distinguished people, and these were most eagerly accepted. Macaulay rapidly became a social favorite, sought for his brilliant conversation, which was as remarkable for a young man of 26 as were his writings in the foremost literary journal of the world. He was not handsome and was carelessly dressed, but he had a massive head and rugged yet benevolent features which lighted up with peculiar animation when he was excited. One of the first persons of note to welcome him to her table was Lady Holland, an accomplished but eccentric and plain-spoken woman who seems to have greatly admired him. He was a frequent guest at the Holland House, where for nearly half a century the courtly and distinguished Lord Holland and his wife entertained the most eminent men and women of the time. This gratified young Macaulay's inordinate social ambition. He scarcely mentions in his letters at this time any but peers and peeresses. And yet he did not court the society of those he did not respect. He was not a parasite or a flatterer even of the great, but met them apparently on equal terms as a monarch of the mind. He was at home in any circle that was not ignorant or frivolous. He was more easy than genial, for his prejudices or intellectual pride made him unkind to persons of mediocrity. It was a bold thing to cross his path, for he came down like an avalanche on those who opposed him, not so much in anger as in contempt. I do not find that his circle of literary friends was large or intimate. He seldom alludes to Carlyle or Bulwer or Thackeray or Dickens. He has more to say of Rogers and Lord Jeffrey and other pets of aristocratic circles. Those who were conventionally favored, like Sidney Smith, 
or those who gave banquets to people of fashion, like Lord Lansdowne. These were the people he loved best to associate with, who listened to his rhetoric with rapt admiration, who did not pique his vanity, and who had something to give him, position and éclat. Macaulay was not a vain man, nor even egotistical, but he had a tremendous self-consciousness, which annoyed his equals in literary fame, and repelled such a giant as Brougham, who had no idea of sharing his throne with anyone, being more overbearing even than Macaulay, but more human. This new rival in the Edinburgh Review, of which for a long time Brougham had been dictator, was, much to Geoffrey's annoyance, not convivial. He did not drink two bottles at a sitting, but guarded his health and preserved his simple habits. Though he speaks with gusto of Lord Holland's turtle and turbot and venison and grouse, he was content when alone with a mutton chop and a few glasses of sherry, or the October ale of Cambridge, which was a part of his perquisites as fellow. He was very exclusive, in view of the fact that he was a poor man without aristocratic antecedents or many powerful friends. Outside the class of rank and fashion, his friends seem to have been leading politicians of the liberal school, the staunch Whigs who passed the reform bill to whom he was true. To his credit, his happiest hours were spent with his sisters in the quiet seclusion of his father's modest home. All his best letters were to them, and in these he detailed his intercourse with the great and the splendor of their banquets and balls. Macaulay's rise, after he had written his famous article on Milton, was rapid. The article itself, striking as it is, must be confessed to be disappointing insofar as it attempted to criticize the Paradise Lost and Milton's other poems. Macaulay's genius was historical, not critical, in the essay is notable rather for its review of the times of Charles I and Archbishop Laud, of the Puritans and the Royalists, than for its literary flavor, except as a brilliant piece of composition. It was, however, the picturesque style of the new writer which was the chief attraction, and the fact that the essay came from so young a man. Macaulay followed the Milton essay with others on Machiavelli, Dryden, Hallam's Constitutional History, and on History in General, which displayed to great advantage his unusual learning, his keen historic instinct, and his splendor of style, he became the most popular contributor to the Edinburgh Review, which was beginning to be dull and heavy, and this kept him before the eyes of politicians and professional men. Macaulay's ambition was now divided between literature and politics. His first appearance as a public speaker was at an annual anti-slavery convention in London in 1826, when he made a marked impression. He eagerly embraced the offer of a seat in the House of Commons, which was secured to him in 1830, and as soon as he entered Parliament, he began to make speeches, which were carefully composed and probably committed to memory. At a single bound, he became one of the leading orators of that renowned assembly. Some of his orations were masterpieces of argument and rhetoric in favor of reform, and of all liberal movements in philanthropy and education. In the opinion of eminent statesmen, he was the most rising member of the House, and sure to become a leader among the Whigs. But he was poor, having only about five hundred pounds a year, the proceeds of his fellowship and his literary productions, to support his dignity as a legislature, and meet the cause of society. So that in 1833 he was rewarded with an office in the Board of Control, which regulated the affairs of India. This doubled his income and made him independent but he wanted an office in which he could lay up money for future contingencies. Therefore, in 1834, he gladly resigned his seat in Parliament and accepted the situation of a member of the Supreme Council of India on a salary of £10,000 a year, £7,000 of which he continued to save yearly, so that at the end of four years, when he returned to England, he had become a rich man, or at least independent, with leisure to do whatever he pleased. 
In India, as chairman of the Board of Education, as legal advisor of the council, and in drafting a code of penal laws for that part of the empire, he was very useful. Although, as a matter of fact, the new code was too theoretically fine to be practical and was never put in force. His personal good sense was equal to his industry and his talents, and he preserved his health by strict habits of temperance. Even in that tropical country, he presented a strong contrast to the sallow, bilious officials with whom he was surrounded, and in due time returned to England in perfect health, one of the most robust of men, capable of indefinite work, which never seemed to weary him. But in Calcutta, as in London, he employed his leisure hours in writing for the Edinburgh Review, and gave an immense impulse to its sale, for which he was amply rewarded. Brougham complained to Geoffrey that his essays took up too much space in the review, but the politic editor knew what was for its interest in popularity. Macaulay's long articles of sometimes over a hundred pages were received without a murmur, and every article he wrote added to his fame, since he always did his best. His essays in 1830 on Southey and Montgomery, and one in 1831 on Croker's edition of Boswell's Life of Johnson, were fierce, scathing onslaughts, even cruel and crushing revealing Macaulay's tremendous powers of invective and remorseless criticism, but reflecting little credit on his disposition or his judgment. His Hampton, 1831, and his Burley, 1832, remain among his finest and most inspiring historical paintings. His first essay on Lord Chatham, 1834, is a notable piece of characterization. The one on Sir James Mackintosh, 1835, is a most acute and brilliant historical criticism. The one on Lord Bacon, 1837, is striking and has become famous, but shows Macaulay's deficiency on philosophic thought, besides being sophistical in spirit. And the article on Sir William Temple, 1837, really a history of England during the reign of William III, is thoroughly fine. Macaulay's residence in India, so far as political ambition was concerned, may have been a mistake. It withdrew him from an arena in which he could have risen to great distinction and influence as a parliamentary orator. He might have been a second fox, whom he resembled in the impetuosity of his rhetoric, if he had also possessed Fox's talents as a debater. Yet he was not a born leader of men. As a parliamentary orator, he was simply a speech-maker, like the Unitarian minister Fox, or that still abler man, the Quaker Bright, both of whom were great rhetoricians. It is probable that he himself understood his true sphere, which was that of a literary man, an historical critic appealing to intelligent people rather than to learned pedants in the universities. His service in India enabled him to write for the remainder of his life with an untrammeled pen, and to live in comfort and ease, enjoying the otium cum dignitate, to which he attached supreme importance. So different from Carlyle, who toiled in poverty at Chelsea to declare truth for truth's sake, grumbling yet lofty in his meditations, the depth of which Macaulay was incapable of appreciating. It is then, as a man of letters rather than as a politician, that our author merits his exalted fame. Respectable as a member of the House of Commons or as a jurist in India in compiling a code of laws, yet neither as a statesman nor as a jurist was he in his right place. The leaders of his party may have admired and praised his oratory, but they wanted something more practical than orations. They wanted the control of men. And so, too, the government demanded a code which would exact the esteem of lawyers and meet the wants of India, rather than a composition which would read well. But as an historical critic and a luminous writer, Macaulay had no superior, a fact which no one knew better than himself. In 1838, on his return from India, where he had regarded himself as an honorable exile, Macaulay had accumulated a fortune of £30,000, to him more than a competency. 
this added to the legacy of ten thousand pounds which he had received from his uncle general macaulay secured to him independence and leisure to pursue his literary work which was paramount to every other consideration if both from pleasure and ambition there ever was a man devoted heart and soul and body to a literary career it was macaulay nor would he now accept any political office which seriously interfered with the passion of his life still less would he waste his time at the dinner parties of the great no longer to him a novelty he was eminently social by nature and fond of talk and controversy with a superb physique capable of digesting the richest dishes and of enduring the fatigues and ceremonies of fashionable life but even the pleasures of the banquet and of cultivated society to many a mere relaxation were sacrificed to his fondness for books to him the greatest and truest companionship especially when they introduced him to the life and manners of bygone ages and to communion with the master minds of the world for relaxation macaulay preferred to take long walks lounge around the bookstalls visit the sights of london with his nieces invite his intimate friends to simple dinners at the albany amuse himself with trifles especially in company with those he loved best in the domestic circle of his relatives whom he treated ever with the most familiar and affectionate sympathy so that while they loved and revered him they had no idea that uncle tom was a great man his most interesting letters were to his sisters and nieces whose amusement and welfare he had constantly in view and who were more to him than all the world besides indeed he did not write many letters except to his relatives his publishers and his intimate friends who were few considering the number of persons he was obliged to meet he was a thoroughly domestic man although he never married or wished to marry it surprises me that macaulay's intercourse with eminent authors was so constrained he saw very little of them but while he did not avoid talking with them when thrown among them and keeping up the courtesies of life even with those he thoroughly disliked i cannot see any evidence that he sought the society of those who were regarded as his equals in genius he liked milman and mackintosh and napier and jeffrey and rogers and a few others but his intimate intercourse was confined chiefly to these and to his family macaulay's fame however was substantially founded and built sydney smith's witty characterization of him is worth recalling i always prophesied his greatness from the first moment that i saw him then a very young and unknown man on the northern circuit there are no limits to his knowledge on small subjects as well as great he is like a book in breeches yes i agree he is certainly more agreeable since his return from india his enemies might have said before though i never did so that he talked rather too much but now he has occasional flashes of silence that make his conversation perfectly delightful but what is far better and more important than all this is that i believe macaulay to be incorruptible you might lay ribbons stars garters wealth title before him in vain he has an honest genuine love of his country and the world could not bribe him to neglect her interests macaulay now devoted several weeks of every year to travel visiting different parts of england and the continent as the mood took him in the autumn of eighteen thirty eight he visited italy it would seem for the first time and was of course enchanted he appreciated natural scenery but was not enthusiastic over it nor did it make a very deep impression on him except for the moment he loved best to visit cities and places consecrated by classical associations while at rome macaulay received from lord melbourne the offer of the office of judge advocate but he unhesitatingly declined it the salary of twenty five hundred pounds was nothing to a scholar who already had a comfortable independence and the duties the situation imposed were not only uncongenial but would interfere with his literary labors 
In February 1839, he returned to London, and now the pressure on him by his political friends to re-enter public life was greater than he could resist. He was elected to Parliament as one of the members from Edinburgh and gave his usual support to his party. In September, he became War Secretary with a seat in the Whig Cabinet under Lord Melbourne. Consequently, he suspended for a while his literary tasks, conducting the business of his department with commendable industry, but without enthusiasm. In the sessions of 1840 and 1841, during the angry discussions pertaining to the registration of votes in Ireland, he gave proof of having profited by the severe legal training he had received from his labors in India. During these years, he found time to write a few reviews, the one on Lord Olive being the most prominent. End of section 13.